Good day and welcome to the Mercy Hill Podcast. My name is Lawson Harlow and I'm one of the elders here at Mercy Hill Church. What you are about to listen to is a sermon that was preached during our weekly worship services in Olive Branch, Mississippi. We hope that you will be encouraged by the preaching of the word as you aim to follow Jesus and make disciples. For more information about Mercy Hill Church, you can visit mercyhillob.org or you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash mercyhillchurchob. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bibles, Romans chapter 6 is where we're going to be this morning. Um, we really find ourselves in a really important portion of the Scriptures. Now, obviously, all of the book of Romans has great importance, but here we have this, this switch. And so, really, the question that we're going to be asking this morning is, how then are we to live under the reign of grace? I mean, over the last couple of months, we've walked our way through the book of Romans, and time and time again, we're reminded of our need of Christ. Time and time again, we're reminded of His great ability to satisfy all the needs that we have. And the question that we really must land at today is, how then are we to live? And the reason this is such an important question is because as we understand the new man that has ultimately been created through the finished work of Jesus Christ, I think the question we must ask then is, how does this man actually live? How does he differ from that old man? And even considering last week, I remember just having this moment remembering my own sin. And as I remember my own sin, my question is, will this man, will this old man that still has sin, death, and rebellion in him, will he ever die? Will he ever go away? And the question that that birthed in me was, okay, yes, will he go away? Of course he will, but when and how? And really what we find this day is that the same means by which that life is given by the Spirit is the means by which that old man will ultimately perish. That all sin and death in me will be done away with, not because I have fought the good fight, but because Christ has already won the great war. And so what we discover in this particular text is this transition of going from How do we receive this grace to how then are we to live in it? And so with that said, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? This is Romans chapter 6. We'll read verses 1 through 4. I would remind you, brothers and sisters, that what you have before you is the only infallible rule of faith and practice for the Christian life. Indeed, it is truth with no mixture of error. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Let's pray together. Father, what great hope we have. Lord, even as we see this, these few verses, we're reminded of the fact that that old man, Lord, he is indeed being put to death, and we look forward to the great day where he will ultimately be put to death. But Lord, there is even something sweeter here, and it is the reminder that we no longer live bound to the reign of sin and death. Instead, it seems, as this text would articulate to us, that we are free to live in Christ Lord, that we have been identified with him. We are no longer in Adam. We have been freed. We have been brought under the the headship of Jesus Christ who is reigning and ruling and lavishing grace upon all those who were his. And so, Father, would you help us to see that this morning? And would you help us to respond accordingly as glad servants of our great king? It is in the name of Jesus and through his blood we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So let's look at our text this morning. And I think there is a very important question that that introduces Romans chapter 6. And Romans chapter 6 starts with a series of questions. And the very first one is this, what shall we say then? 
Now, as you all know, when we have these transition phrases, it's very important for us to understand what is he asking this question about. So in short, what shall we say about what? Now, obviously, the immediate context of this is looking back into last week's message in really verses 20 and 21 that says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also may reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, that's obviously the immediate context, but I'm convinced that what Paul is actually asking is, what then shall we say about everything that we have heard up to this point? How are we to respond? And if I could maybe just give a brief recap of all that we have examined, because we are in chapter six and we're, I believe, somewhere around 50 sermons into the book of Romans. So let's do a brief recap. What shall we say about what? What shall we say about the Son of God becoming incarnate? What shall we say about the descendant of David who came down, who dwelt with us, who took on flesh to become like us in every way, yet without sin? What shall we say about Jesus Christ, the incarnate King of glory? What shall we say about the righteousness of God that has been manifested, the righteousness of God that comes through faith and through faith alone? What shall we say about the reality that in and of ourselves, we deserve only wrath and fury. If you were to turn back just a page, you would be reminded of the reality that only those who obey the truth and keep righteousness with perfection deserve anything other than eternal eternal life and peace. But for us who have disobeyed, deserve wrath and fury, tribulation and distress. And so not only do we have the beauty of Romans 1 that introduces the means by which we might have a righteousness not of our own, But we also, in this immediate section right after, are reminded that there is nothing that we have done in and of ourselves to merit anything other than tribulation and distress. Well, what shall we say about that? But then it would go on to say, it's not just that you have rebelled against the glory of God. It's not just that you are wicked, that you have sinned, that you have rebelled against the glory of God. It goes further and essentially articulates that in the very essence of your being, this sin has taken root. I mean, just turn our attention for just a moment to Romans chapter 3 and hear what it says once again over us. Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, it says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. What shall we say? Because brothers and sisters, if you're like me and you come to the end of that brief section of Scripture, the immediate thought should be, well, in that case, no one, no one deserves eternal life and peace. Everyone has consigned themselves ultimately to tribulation and distress. So what shall we say? Well, the Scripture goes on because that's not the conclusion of, obviously, the book of Romans. Otherwise, it would be a very sad book. True, but sad. What we ultimately have in the immediate verses following is in verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, speaking of all human beings, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. But then there is this blessed verse, verse 21, where it looks at the ruined sinner who it has just laid absolutely in the dust and says there is no means of righteousness for you. Should you work for it all the days of your life, your best works are as filthy rags. There is absolutely no hope in you. And then he points us to an external glorious hope. 
if you'll pay attention to just the simple verse in verse 21, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. In this very simple verse, I would remind you that what you have is the greatest hope of the Christian faith, is that there is a righteousness of God that is manifested apart from the law. And not only is it manifested apart from the law, it is manifested first and foremost in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who we spoke of in chapter 1, who is incarnate, who is declared to be the Son of God in power by the resurrection of the dead. This is ultimately what the Lord Jesus has come not only to reveal, but to bring into the life of those who would trust him by faith. And as you would go forward in Romans chapter 3, you will see quite clearly that it is only through his finished work that any justification will actually come. We spent a great deal of time filling this word justification full. It is the redemption of the firstborn. It is the propitiation of the sins of all those who would trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, meaning that there is one who came in our place to rescue and to redeem. And not only that, but he is the one who has satisfied the wrath of God in perfection, which means everything that we read in Romans chapter 2 concerning the fact that we deserve tribulation and distress, wrath, and fury, we have not received because Jesus drank the cup in full. We have everything that he has merited because of his infinite grace. And the question then must be, well, if all of that is true, how then is it applied to me? What must I do? Isn't that the first question that comes to your mind as you see all the benefits of Jesus Christ? Is your question would be, okay, how do I get this? How is this applied to me? How do I receive all the riches of Christ? How do I, what do I do? How do I reach out and grab and lay hold of them? And Paul looks back at them and says, faith. And you can imagine the Jewish heart as they're reading this, faith. You mean, I've been circumcised on the eighth day. I've kept the law. I'm of Abraham. And Paul looks back at them and says, faith. There is no means of winning the grace of God. It is bestowed. It is lavished. That is what it means in essence to be grace. It is lavished on these people, as Romans 3 would say, that are not righteous, that do not seek for God, that are ultimately in rebellion against him from head to toe. And Paul looks at them and says, you lay hold of these things by faith. And you can imagine the heart, and I imagine that you perhaps have had this moment in your own life where you think to yourself, but I've done nothing. Praise be to God, you have done nothing. Because if you had done anything, you would have ruined it altogether. But ultimately, what we see is that the Lord Jesus Christ has provided a great salvation and not only provided a great salvation, but made it abundantly clear that he is the only one who is to receive praise, glory, and honor from it because he has done all the work. You need only look at him and believe upon him by faith. Now, with all of that, being forgiven of our sin, being in Christ Jesus, and ultimately receiving this free gift of grace only through faith, We are then reminded of the benefits of that justification. What is ultimately applied? What occurs in the life of the believer when they come to be justified by faith? To give a brief refrain of Romans chapter 5, Therefore, having been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We are reminded that we have peace with God through the work of another. That though we were at complete enmity with him, Jesus Christ in his perfect work has redeemed us and reconciled us, as we have already heard read this morning, to the Father. Not an incomplete reconciliation, but a perfect reconciliation. We are not at enmity any longer. There is no ceasefire. It is a true and lasting eternal peace purchased for us. We have peace with God. And not only do we have peace with God, we have the presence of God. Even in this very verse in Romans chapter 5, again, it says we have received grace to stand before him that we enjoy this perfect fellowship. It is not just an abstract. Instead, it is a reality that we actually do know him and enjoy his presence forevermore. 
So what do we have? We have this great grace. And not only do we have this great grace, but it goes even further to remind us that not only is justification applied, brothers and sisters, if we could just latch on to this one thing as we press forward, you are free from sin. You're free from it. It no longer has a snare on you. And even as we look forward to this, we're reminded that, yes, as I still sin in the flesh, as there's still rebellion in me, grace will abound all the more. Grace is always increasing and conquering sin. It is always waging a glorious and victorious war on it. I am actually free from this. And that leads us to ask the question, if all of those things are true, what shall we say? What should our response be to these great realities? How should we respond? My goodness, as we have been wooed by the gospel over the last five chapters, how then are we to live? And he asked this question, and I think this question is a really important one because essentially the question, perhaps summarized in a different way, is how do we live under the reign of grace? I'm no longer under the reign of sin and death. It no longer is my master. I am freed from these realities. I am no longer an Adam. I am free from sin. I am free from its consequence. And I am under this blessed reign of grace that lavishes all the blessings of God upon me. If that be the case, what shall we say? And this immediate question following, I think is a really intriguing one. Because if you, if you look at it, I mean, th- this almost seems, if you really have grasped everything that Romans 1 through 5 has laid out, this question would seemingly be both the first question you would ask and the last question you would ask. Now, the reason being is because the grace that we see very clearly displayed in Romans 1 through 5 is such a radical grace that it seems as if there is no means of conquering it or ruining it or breaking it or casting that grace underneath sin. You are actually freed from it. And if that's the case, that would lead us to ask the question first, why would this simple statement, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound, ultimately be asked? Well, it would be asked first and foremost because as we have already seen, the grace of God offered is free. The grace of God that is offered is free. Now, I want you to consider who is ultimately being redeemed from each of these things. I mean, consider for just a moment. If we go back into Romans chapter 5, do you know what the refrain is? It is this refrain of we and the we have been justified, but there's also a secondary refrain in that, and it's we were sinners, ungodly, unrighteous, slaves of sin. Under our father Adam and death. And the reason this is such an interesting question is because the grace of God is ultimately so free that it seeks out those who would be the last that any in the world would suggest would ultimately be redeemed. It seeks out the enemies of God. It seeks out those who are most clearly defined by Romans 3, 10 through 19. No one seeks for God, no, not one. And yet this grace of God comes and this grace of God draws. And not only does this grace of God draw, it looks at ruined sinners and says, come. There are no stipulations. There is no barrier. There is no other secondary means of entry. It simply invites you to come unto Jesus. And as you come unto Jesus, you come full and free. You enter in, and as you enter in, that position that you once had as an enemy of God, as a sinner, as a rebel, is no longer your identity. Instead, you are lavished with the heavenly blessings of Jesus Christ that call you righteous, saint, loved. The grace is full and free. So why would this question be asked? Because it seems as though anyone, any human being can enter in, can run to Christ and see that even though they be the most wicked human beings in all the planet, if they come unto Jesus, then they will have life and life eternal. So the question's asked, well, 
Is sin even a barrier? And seemingly what the gospel says is, no, I've trampled it underfoot. This grace is full and free. But secondly, for those of us who have already received the Lord Jesus Christ, because of this great grace is always superabounding, should I then go on sinning? Should I go on and trespass in iniquity? That way, that way others might see my wickedness and see that the grace of God is always superabounding over it. My goodness, what a carnal heart says this. Carnal heart would look at this and say, oh, yes. I can go on sinning, and as I go on sinning, God's grace is made all the more. And since God's grace is made all the more, if I go on sinning, God will appear more glorious. He will appear more gracious. And this is a reasonable question, just to be honest with you. It's a reasonable question at bare minimum from the natural mind, as we'll see here in a moment. But it is true, as you read back up in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so it is true, brothers and sisters, that as you sin, grace does abound. God is seen infinitely more gracious, but the changed heart never says, let me go on sinning that grace may increase. The carnal one does. As a matter of fact, I think it's a great identifier of those who would profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, but not actually possess it. Because those who have been redeemed, those who experience that blessed reign of grace in their life, their very last thought is, let me flee back to sin. And so what do we have? A very interesting question. But lastly, I think it's important for us to ask the question, what happens if this question is never asked of us? If this question is never asked, if, if, if this question never comes to the mind of anyone who hears, and brothers and sisters, I will confess to you that I have actually had one individual say, to me that it seems as though you have a licentious gospel, meaning that you can go on multiplying sin, which is the furthest thing from the truth. But I'm so glad that that charge has been levied. And the reason I'm glad that that charge has been levied is because this question, this question, shall we go on saying that grace may increase, is never asked in the Catholic Church. It's never asked there. It's never asked in the Catholic Church, can we go on saying that grace may increase? It seems quite the contrary to it, doesn't it? Because you must do certain things, certain works, and should you commit any mortal sin at all, then you will be cast from grace altogether. Indeed, there are some who would call themselves evangelicals who deny this reality altogether and say that you can lose your salvation with whatever sin and whatever trespass you might commit at any given moment. Isn't it interesting that Paul includes this question as if those who were sitting in Rome would immediately ask it? And the reason that he includes this question is because, brothers and sisters, what we have in this very simple statement is really, really a glorious, glorious reality. And it's this, that the grace of God is indeed free. That the grace of God, the finished work of Jesus Christ, does always save unto the uttermost. And as you consider just this very simple statement and the realities that they are never asked in those churches that would demand you obey ultimately to be saved, that is not the reality set forth in Scripture. As we have already sung, the only means for us to trust and obey the Lord Jesus Christ is if the grace of God has been lavished into our heart by the Holy Spirit. And so what must we be doing? We must always be preaching a gospel that is full and free, that looks looks unto Jesus and says he is the only means of rescue and redemption. And should we add anything to it, then brothers and sisters, this question would never be asked of us. But if this question is asked, we must be quick to answer, of course, by no means just as Paul does, but we must always be preaching a gospel that would ultimately have us accused of this. Why? Because, brothers and sisters, if we're preaching the gospel of Romans 5, if we're preaching the gospel of Romans 1 through 5, if we're preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, then we often find ourselves looking at ruined sinners amidst their stumbling, amidst their sin, and we say, 
grace abounds. We would look at them who struggle, who wage a war against sin day in and day out, and yet they do find themselves falling and failing and sinning. And we say grace abounds. Grace abounds. Grace is always triumphant. Grace abounds. But at the exact same time, we must answer this question the same way that Paul does, lest we betray the gospel that he has ultimately preached. So let's consider, what is this question? What shall we say then? Shall we go on saying that grace may increase? I want you to hear this language because it literally is essentially the strongest emphatic no that we can find in the scriptures. Shall we go on saying that grace may increase? By no means. Why by no means? Why is it so important that this question actually be asked meaning that we're preaching the full gospel of Jesus and actual freedom from sin and actual redemption and reconciliation unto him, not based upon anything that we have done, but completely based on the work of Jesus. And then at the exact same time, have this question asked that we might emphatically and dramatically say, no, we are not to continue in sin that grace may increase. The reason being, as I'm convinced that this answer, should we answer it without the emphatic no, but instead the affirmative yes, then we assault the grace of God in Christ. Now, the reason we assault the grace of God in Christ is really threefold, and I think it deals with each person of the Godhead. The reason that we refrain no is because this question, if answered in the affirmative, abuses the grace of God. It was never his intent to save you from just the consequence of sin. Never. As we deal with the grace of God, what is its intent? As we've already heard read this morning, it was for reconciliation. It was for redemption. It was for propitiation. It was to change you. A gospel that does not change is no gospel of God. It is a frail and feeble gospel. It is a gospel that really does not save at all. If it does not save you at all here, brothers and sisters, it will not save you on the day of judgment. What we have in the grace of God, should we answer this in the affirmative as a total misunderstanding? But we say by no means. Why? Because the grace of God is so mighty that it takes those who are the Romans three rebels and makes them friends, makes them sons and daughters. As Revelation would say, makes them the bride of Christ. And he does a great work in his grace to bring them from death ultimately to life. Not only does it assault the grace of God, but it also assaults the victory of Jesus. How frail that cross would be. It's even painful to even consider the foolishness of that very statement, how frail that cross. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ died to redeem the whole man. And when Jesus Christ died to redeem the whole man, he, you are not, hear me, you are not waiting for the everlasting life that Jesus Christ purchased for you. If you be in him this day, you are currently enjoying it all the while longing to have it all the more. We await with eager expectation, but brothers and sisters, the victory of Jesus Christ conquers sin underfoot. It frees you from your father, Adam. You are no longer what you once were. You are no longer under the reign of sin and death. Why? Because Jesus' victory freed you from its bonds and ransomed you to sit under him as, as his great child. Born again, ransomed, redeemed. We must not assault the grace of God. We must not assault the victory of Jesus by saying that we can continue in sin, that grace may abound. And lastly, we must not assault the power of the Spirit to free and to woo. Why? 
Brothers and sisters, all throughout the scriptures, we're reminded of the Spirit's power to pour the love of God into our hearts. And if you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good through his finished work, should you actually have been transferred from under the reign of sin and death unto the reign of Jesus Christ and life everlasting, then you will with great joy pursue him. Why? Because he has been revealed to you as the most infinitely lovely thing under the sun. He is altogether beautiful, and if he is altogether beautiful, if the Holy Spirit of God has lavished that into your heart, the very last thing you will say as you see the Lord Jesus Christ is, I think I'll have some more sin, because you've seen it for what it is. You've been freed, you've been rescued, you have been redeemed, and to answer this in any other way than by no means is a great revelation that you have not tasted that reign of grace. Because if you have, you would shout with him, no. And you would be appalled and furious when you see it abused in such a way. And it is that. It is just an abuse. This question, should it be answered in the affirmative, it abuses the grace that the gospel brings. It assaults it. It weakens it. It cheapens it. And brothers and sisters, if I could make a brief note to this, it is a gospel that is far too often preached. The gospel of Jesus Christ ransoms, it redeems. The spirit of God gives life to mortal bodies and we live in them. And any gospel that you hear, for just a side note here for a moment, if you find yourself ever leaving this church by going to a different place in town, because I know you'd never leave if you were still here, and you find such a weak gospel, run quickly. Go to the place where the gospel is preached. Go to the place where you will have this charge. Shall we go on sinning that grace may increase? Ask that because he preaches a gospel that is full and free and hear him resound, no. Go to the place where the gospel of Jesus Christ is proclaimed. And so what we have is a grace that is not cheapened. Why? Because a grace that prompts the redeemed to sin is not the grace of God. It is not the grace of God at all. Grace never prompts deeper sin nor makes an apology for it. Brothers and sisters, isn't it interesting that in the same moment that we would say, oh yes, there's grace full and free, that anyone who would come and have a conversation with any of the elders or perhaps any other brothers and sisters in Christ and they would come confessing their sin, they would say, I've sinned, I've rebelled against the, 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 the glory of God, I've, I've fallen short, and immediately, the hopefully, the command, the, the rebuke, the encouragement, the edification from that person would be, oh, but the grace of God abounds. But at the exact same time, they would say, but go sin no more. Sin no more. Savor the grace of God, but do not go on sinning that you might think you will savor it all the more. You do not savor it as you go on sinning. You savor it when you fall, when you stumble. And I love what Spurgeon says, perhaps to bring this simple point to a close, is grace is the, grace is the nurse and mother of holiness and not the apologist of sin. What we have in the grace of God, freedom from sin and death is ultimately freedom unto life everlasting. And that life everlasting is not something that we await. It is something that we enjoy this day. Most certainly it is to come. We often say here that we have a near and a not yet. It is near now, but it will be. The grace of God is here and the grace of God will come. But then let's go a bit further because there is, I think, ultimately his primary purpose. And I think we really must understand this very simple question that he asked because if we understand this very question on the back end, his response ultimately to shall we go on saying that grace may increase, I think if we misunderstand this, then we will ultimately misunderstand all of six and all of seven and ultimately as we enter into chapter eight, we will really miss the beauty of that very clear statement. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because 
Paul gives us the answer. How should we live under the reign of grace? And then he begins to exposit this over the next few chapters. It is important for us to note in this very simple statement, how can we who died to sin still live in it? And it's interesting. This question is asked, and I think oftentimes we miss the beauty of the question. It's assumed he is answering every objection with this one reality that you have died to sin. And not only have you died to sin, but it seems as if we live somewhere else. It is no longer our location, or perhaps a simple way to say it, it is no longer our address. We live elsewhere. There is a different life that we possess now today. And so it's important for us to note, first, the grace that abounds to forgive sin is the same grace that frees from sin. It is the exact same lavishing of the grace that Jesus bought that rescues you and forgives sin that ultimately ransoms you and frees you from it. And that leads us to ask the question, and I think a very important one, who is it that is dead to sin? So if you just notice the first phrase here, how can we? Well, who is the we? Who's the we? There's some that would come in and they would make arguments that this is speaking specifically of the apostles, but that certainly is not the case because from Romans chapter 5, verse 1, all the way to our present text, the we has always meant those who have been redeemed by faith and by faith alone. It is those who have trusted in Jesus Christ for the remission of sin. It is those who believe that Jesus Christ is the propitiation for their sin, is their justification, is their sanctification, is their redemption. This is who we see. Who is the we? It is we who have believed. So who is the we? We have been justified. And it is important for us to know here, if you, friend, this morning are here, and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, you should not, you have not come to him, then this cannot be said of you. You are not free from sin. It seems as if, if anything, you are alive and well to sin, which essentially means that you are still dead in your sin. You're here this day, you walked in perhaps, and you thought, I'll hear some good news today. Here's some bad news for you that the good news might taste a bit better. You were dead in your sin apart from the work of Jesus Christ. You were in need of rescue and redemption, but the good news is that we have a blessed gospel that frees from sin into the uttermost. And so what do we see? We see that those who are indeed in the Lord Jesus Christ have been freed from sin's snare. I think a simple way to say it is this. Apart from Jesus Christ, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. And in Jesus Christ, you are dead to sin. It no longer has a snare on you if you have fled to him. Now, that does lead to us to ask another question. What does it mean to be dead to sin? We've spoken of all of this, the means by which we're dead to sin. We've spoken of the application of it. We've spoken of the question that ultimately leads us to the answer. But let's deal with the actual question. What does it mean to be dead to sin? And I want to give you three, I think, really important categories for what it means to be dead to sin. First, it means that through the finished work of Christ, we are dead to its consequence. Now, for the Christian, I would remind you this day that this very simple statement tells us, professes over us, that there is no sin that Jesus died for that you will pay for. If Jesus died in your place, if he is your propitiation, meaning that he is the satisfactory sacrifice of God's wrath, then there is no wrath for you. Sin's consequence has ultimately been defeated in the Lord Jesus Christ. Or perhaps better yet, sin's consequence has been absorbed in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has paid that price in full. And since he has paid that price in full, we must understand that no sin's consequence will come to us. The wrath of God will never reach us. I know I use this illustration perhaps a bit too frequently, but just as Noah was in the ark and not a drop of water touched his head, so too is it with the saint who has been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ. No wrath will reach us, for he has provided a better ark in Christ. We are redeemed. We are protected. 
And here's one thing that I often find in the unconverted who would perhaps say that they know the Lord Jesus Christ. This is normally satisfactory for the unconverted. It's normally satisfactory for the unconverted that would hear the gospel and they would say, ah, Jesus Christ has paid the consequence for my sin. And since he has paid the consequence for my sin, then I can go on sinning that grace may increase. And the reason this is such an important point, brothers and sisters, is if you find yourself ever just being satisfied with the fact that Jesus paid the consequence for your sin and you never look and long for deeper freedom from sin, I would argue that you are unconverted altogether. Why? Because the converted hate sin. They love the reign of grace. They long to be freed from sin's power and sin's snare, not just its consequence. And this leads us to the second category. Not only are we freed from the consequence of our sin, far more than that, it means that through the life-giving work of the Spirit, we are dead to its snare. Consider this for a moment. That great enemy sin that had us bound, and bound is perhaps even a weak turn. It had us enslaved, captured, captive. It, was, it possessed us all together. Jesus Christ came and freed us from. He broke the bonds, gave us the Spirit of God to apply all those blessings realities and now it no longer has any right over us it does not possess power and throughout the life of the christian that is more and more and more experienced when we actually do come to saving faith in in christ when we are freed and we know and we rejoice in the reality that we are freed from its consequences we begin to rejoice all the more that he has not left us in a state of bondage just paying for the consequence he has broken its snare altogether sin no longer has a hold sin no longer has a hold we are freed from its consequence most certainly we are dead to its consequences we are dead to its power and lastly and perhaps most beautifully we find the true culmination of all of these things It means that there is a true and lasting freedom from sin's snare. Yes, through Jesus' reign of grace, we are, and this is an important word, eternally dead to sin. Not just its consequence, not just its power, but its presence. Its presence will no longer have any right to be before us. Why? Because Jesus Christ has eradicated it. When we die, when we perish, when we draw our last breath, we go unto everlasting life, never to sin again. And not only that, we look forward to the great day, not only when we would draw our last breath and rejoice and say, oh, free from sinning. But we look forward to the great day when all of our brothers and sisters that have been ransomed by the blood of Jesus will dwell around his throne, singing his praises forevermore, and not a trace of sin will be present. Can you imagine the singing in that place? Those who have experienced that freedom, who say, I've been freed from its consequence, and that was wonderful. I was freed from its power. But here, there is no presence. It is glory in all glory. It is obedience and delight in all obedience and delight. It is the only thing that resides here is worship pure and holy. That's the reality of what it means to be freed from sin. It's dead. It actually has no snare. Its consequence is gone. Its power eradicated. And ultimately, its presence will be cast into hell where it belongs. And we will live full and free. Now, that's just the negative. The negative is that sin is conquered. Sin is defeated. But that's not ultimately and only what Paul is indicating to us. It is not just that we are dead to sin. All throughout the scriptures, there seems to be this flee from, flee to, this better and worse. I think of 
Paul's command to Timothy, flee from these things, pursue righteousness. It's very similar here, actually. He tells us of this wicked, evil thing, sin, and its snare. He tells us of its wickedness, of its heinousness, of its hideousness. And then he would tell us that we no longer live there, and it presumes that we have a new life. It presumes that there is something better. It presumes that there is a glorious reality. And really from this point forward, what we have Paul expositing is the life that is bestowed upon us, the life in which we ultimately live. So if you go back and you look at that question, how can we who died to sin still live in it any longer? Brothers and sisters, that leads me to ask the question, where do we live? My residence from the day that I was born until the day that the Lord Jesus applied his finished work to me was sin. That's where I dwelt. It's the reason Ephesians 2 opens, for you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. It lays out the case of who we are naturally. You were dead where? In your trespasses and sins. Where did I reside before the Lord Jesus came and rescued me? It very clearly states that I resided, that I dwelt under the reign of sin and death. It was my location. But seemingly, according to this text, and as he will go forward to argue in the, pre, in the next chapters, is that my new life is not in sin and death, it's in a man. It's in the man, Christ Jesus, who is the only mediator between God and man. It is the one who was hung upon that tree. He was lifted up, raised for our justification. Where is the life that I now live? It is in Christ Jesus. The whole premise of everything that we have looked at so forth was to lay out the reality that the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that in Jesus Christ you die to sin and in Jesus Christ you live unto God. You dwell with him forevermore. No more can I say that I live in sin. If I have been freed by the work of Christ, then I must say I live in him. He is my residence. He is my hope. He is my joy. He is my comfort. He is my peace. What we ultimately have in Jesus Christ is the total opposite of the death that sin provided. It is life that Christ provided, and it is life everlasting. The beauty of the, of the freedom from the consequence is that there is a new consequence. Our new consequence is the consequence of Jesus's righteousness. The power is no longer the power of sin. Instead, it is the power of the Spirit to give life to our mortal bodies. The presence, the presence of sin that is so indwelling, it still remains, and we hate it. We'll be drowned out by a glorious presence forevermore. The Lord will be the light of that city, and it will be cast upon us, I would say, all day and all night, but there will be no night. It is His presence forevermore. So if I cannot live in sin, where then do I live? I live in Jesus Christ. I live in His life. I live in His presence. I live in obedience. I live in love and adoration. I live in those blessed fields of grace that he has purchased for his sheep. And I live unto him forevermore.